Writing screenplays is often reduced to a few deceptively simple maxims. Screenplays are structure, drama is conflict, action is character, theme is queen. But vaulted above those principles, perhaps the most honest truism is, writing is rewriting. And there are perhaps few better proofs of that than Castaway, first thought up by actor Tom Hanks in 1994, and then written and rewritten and rewritten over the following four years by William Broyles Jr. Here is the film's director, Robert Zemeckis. The way Tom explained it to me was, what would it be like to really be stranded on an island? What would it really be like? I said, that's pretty interesting. He and Bill wrote a couple of drafts of the screenplay, and then they sent it to me. That was about five years before we started production, and uh, it had a long way to go. We did 125 rewrites, so there were like millions of, of changes, you know, hundreds of thousands of them, uh, which is the process that you go through when you make a movie. I mean, nothing's ever just written, ever. Screenplays are endlessly rewritten and endlessly rewritten. A story's title is often the first engagement a reader will have with the script. But as the pages are turned, a good title will begin to resonate in ways unexpected, until finally by the end, it admits to the real meaning. Consider Goodwill Hunting, The King's Speech, The Social Network, Adaptation. In the case of Castaway, we might initially consider it a noun, denoting a person marooned on an island. But as can be seen from the film's opening credit, it is split into two words. First we see cast, then away, which redefines it as a pre-nominal adjective, cast, away, or a verb, to shed, let go. But the way the film was advertised, the story was about a man whose life is literally and figuratively blown off course when his plane crashes over the Pacific Ocean and he is washed up on the shore of a tiny, remote and uninhabited island. But when Tom Hanks was promoting the film upon its release in December 2000, he let slip it was really about something else. This is a story of the best thing that ever happened to this guy <laughs> was, was you know, his plane blowing up and him being stuck on an island for, for, a, for a really long time. When Hanks first suggested the story to Broyles, Broyles was one of the writers on Ron Howard's Apollo 13. That script would earn Broyles an Oscar nomination, but his writing career had begun three decades earlier, when, in the early 60s, he had been contributing editor to Rice Thresher, the college newspaper at Rice University. Later that decade, he went to England where he wrote for The Economist, before then enlisting in the Marine Corps to serve with American forces in Vietnam. Broyles then parlayed that experience into the TV show China Beach. So for that, Broyles had experience to draw from. But he had no first-hand knowledge of being a castaway, so he went off and got some, and in getting that wisdom, he hit upon the story's real meaning. I found these, these, these guys that were, were, were primitive technology experts, and they took me down to the Sea of Cortez. You know, very quickly you realize, oh my God, I've got to survive. You know, where do I get water? How do I, you know, how do, I do anything? And I'd been through survival training in the military and all this. It was a total comedy. I spent literally a day and a half trying to make fire. And I did all the stuff you do in Boy Scouts. You know, I, did, I did this stuff. And there's a reason Prometheus is a great myth, because fire is like a gift. And as Tom and I started talking about it, um, the idea of him being a Federal Express executive uh, uh, came out very early, and because it was sort of the symbol of, of modern man. What is modern man? Is he so dependent on technology that he cannot survive without it? Is he self-reliant in any way? Can he adapt to his new surroundings and face down the challenges of isolation? Here is Hanks again, 
this time on the Charlie Rose Show. The idea of a person being taken away from the distraction upon which I think we can hang our lives after one. By and large, we are loaded with distractions, not just of what we choose to entertain ourselves, but also the way we fill up our day is always bent on having your attention dragged away from you know, probably something you'd rather be able to pay attention to. And once that's gone uh, in, in the form of, of Chuck Nolan, and, and there's literally nothing else that's left, what does that do to you? Do you become like a monk? Yeah. where you're, you know, you become even, you know, more spiritual. And, and I, I thought it would be, I thought it was worthy of, a, of, of examination to see what that would do to a guy. Excuse the pun, but that realisation comes to Chuck Noland gradually in waves. He works for FedEx and so his job, his purpose, and for a long time Chuck thinks the meaning of his being comes from always having a deadline and just as importantly, having a destination. Literally a point. Excuse the next pun. But all that is chucked out the window when he finds himself, here's another one, in no man's land. Yet it takes him a while to understand that he has not been so much stranded on a desert island as liberated from the distraction of modern life and all its trappings. In preparing for the role, Hanks famously padded out his weight, adding on some 55 pounds. Which means, in terms of drama, we see him feasting with his family at Thanksgiving and then, later on the island, we see him foraging for food and shedding that excess down to the bare essentials. But that is not the only measure of change going on. Look carefully and you will notice how Zemeckis and his cinematographer Don Burgess frequently open a given scene on a close-up of an object before pulling away to develop the master so we observe that object in the wider context of the scene. Yes, at the beginning the constantly roving camera reflects Chuck's restless energy. But such moves always visualise or at least foreshadow, the wider awareness that Chuck will have to develop. Likewise, the camera moves pit the events into a broader historical context. Of all the squares in all the cities in all of the world, the one place Broyles and Zemeckis put Chuck is Moscow's Red Square. And all around him, we see evidence of the monumental fall of communism as Russia shed its totalitarian communist past and ushered in capitalist democracy. And as far as Chuck is concerned, it's about time. That's why every FedEx office has a clock. Because we live or we die by the clock. We never turn our back on it. And we never ever allow ourselves the sin of losing track of time. Locally, it's 1.56. That means we've got three hours and four minutes before the end of today's package sort. That's how long we have. That's how much time we have before this pulsating, accursed, relentless taskmaster tries to put us out of business. Of course, when the plane crashes and Chuck wakes up on the shore, his notion of time and how he measured it is, well, washed away. The tick-tock of the clock is replaced by the waves endlessly lapping up on the sands. Those waves wash away the ideologies of communism and democracy. Here, they account for nothing. Yet, one ideology remains, and that is Chuck's commitment to work. When he washes up on the shore, he finds FedEx packages strewn across the beach, and at first, he adheres to protocol and dutifully goes about sorting them into regions. His adherence to the world of order, shipping and delivery orders, is so great, he is refusing to admit to his new situation. Which means, Broyles has turned the FedEx boxes into a metaphor. A more fanciful term for it is analogical juxtaposition, 
But either way, once a writer attaches metaphorical significance to an object, it is difficult to change it. Think of how in The Godfather, the use of glass and its shattering symbolises both the Corleone family's strength and vulnerability. Or in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the significance attached to the 1961 Ferrari 250 GT California. Now consider how the Coen brothers use the peeling wallpaper in Barton Fink, Tom Regan's hat in Miller's Crossing, the rug in The Big Lebowski. Holy Jesus, what is that thing? Uh, it's, uh, it's my cat. Well, it's not my cat. Grown it's... man with a cat. Is that part of your act? No. What'd you say you played? Folk songs. Folk songs. I thought you said you were a musician. Folk singer with a cat. You queer? I... It's not my cat. I just didn't know what to do with it. Really? So, did you bring your dick along too? Can we all agree with any degree of certainty exactly what each or any of those objects symbolise? No, because the cones studiously keep their meanings ambiguous. Which is a polite way of saying that they just might mean nothing at all. Either way, they do retain our fascination and thus vitality. But in Castaway, when Broyles has Chuck break open the boxes, he transforms the metaphor. Where, once they symbolised Chuck's commitment to FedEx, the civilised world, they now stand for Chuck's severance from the modern world. And then Broyles goes one step further by having Chuck sift through the contents and assess them for their adaptability. How could video cassettes and ice skates possibly help them survive? Just as Chuck changes their function, so too has Broyles managed again to change the meaning of his metaphor. Now consider how the film opens. Here is how Broyles wrote it. The Texas Plains, horizon to horizon, nothing but the browns and ochres of the earth and the blue and violet of the sky. The sheer scope of it sinks in. The blank slate of nature, the absence of man. Broyles is already set in the groundwork for what will follow. Then in the distance, Zemeckis has a FedEx van up here and with a clear sense of direction, it takes a right turn and heads on towards its collection point. Then at the end of the film, after all the tumult in Chuck's life, he arrives at the same location to deliver a package. The one package from the island he chose not to open. Because it was bedecked with angel's wings, which Chuck read as a constant reminder of his need to get off the island. Now at the end of the film, and having delivered the package, Chuck now stands at the very same crossroads, and for the very first time, he is free to choose his own direction. And as far as I can make out, that feeds into one of the recurring themes that used to dominate Robert Zemeckis' films. Hey McFly! What do you think you're doing? Biff. Hey, I'm talking to you, McFly, you Irish bug. Oh, hey, Biff. Hey, guys, how are you doing? Yeah, you got my homework finished, McFly? Uh, well, actually, I figured since it wasn't due till Monday... I'd... Hello? Hello? Anybody home? Hey, think, McFly. Think. I gotta have time to recopy it. You realize what would happen if I hand in my homework in your handwriting? I'll get kicked out of school. When, in 1985, Doc Brown had plutonium to power his DeLorean time machine, 
once Marty McFly finds himself back in 1955, they don't have the means to generate the 1.21 gigawatts required to propel Marty back to the future. But because Marty has come from the future, he knows precisely when a bolt of lightning strong enough to generate the power will strike the town's clock tower. Now, remember how the movie opened, with again Zemeckis starting on a close-up, this time on a clock and slowly panning around the room so we see another clock, and another, and as the camera pulls wider and wider, we see dozens upon dozens of clocks. Is time Zemeckis' recurring theme? No, but it is essential to it. Catapulted back to 1955, Marty finds himself living decades before he was born, but suddenly, with the opportunity to change the past, he has the chance to rewrite not just his, but the future of his entire family. In other words, change his destiny. And destiny is a factor that runs through Zemeckis' multi-Oscar winning Forrest Gump. I happen to believe you make your own destiny. You have to do the best with what God gave you. What's my destiny, Mom? You're gonna have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates, Forrest. You never know what you're gonna get. Mama always had a way of explaining things so I could understand them. I will miss you, Forrest. Zemeckis begins his fairy tale by following a feather as it floats across the sky, wafting as the breeze takes it this way and that before it gradually descends and veers its way through the midtown traffic before finally settling on the mud-soaked sneaker of our blissfully naive hero. But unlike Marty McFly, who battled ferociously to forge his own destiny, Forrest Gump's path will more resemble that of the feather. Although morally good, Forrest is not smart enough to create any design for his life, so instead he will be prey to happenstance, blind luck and coincidence. And from that collection of blessed experiences, it appears Forrest's fortune has been predestined. Now consider Zemeckis' 1997 sci-fi story, Contact. Just like before, Zemeckis begins on an object before pulling out to a wider shot. Only here, that object is Earth, and the wider shot is a seemingly ever-widening view of the never-ending universe. But then, something really interesting happens. As the planets slip into the distance, and the solar systems merge into the Milky Way, and the light blurs into a mass of colour, the image suddenly alters and we realise we are looking at a human eye. And pulling away yet further, we see the eye belongs to that of a young girl. And in that one shot, Zemeckis has once again visualised part of his theme. CQ. CQ. This is W9GFO here. Come back. Contact charts not only a great journey across the stars, but also the sort of mind needed to envisage such an epic voyage to begin with. Great minds are needed because the cosmic trek ultimately ponders on the origins and unifying elements of the universe. Is there a cognitive design to the cosmos, premeditated by one single deity, or is the universe self-governing, run by an infinite number of ever-readjusting equations? Do you believe in God? As a scientist, I uh, 
rely on empirical evidence. And uh, in this matter, I, I don't believe that there is data either way. To end, here are two other things scriptwriting is about. Making brave choices and resisting the easy route. The number of daring decisions Broyles and Zemeckis made are really instructive to storytellers. Surely there must have been a temptation, or at least the pressure from the studio, to cut away from Chuck and the island and back to Memphis to show the panic, loss and trauma his loved ones would have been going through. And then intercutting their ultimate resignation to the loss with Chuck's efforts to get off the island. But those decisions would have weakened what I regard as Broyles' best screenplay, Hanks' best performance and Zemeckis' best movie.